0: Well, you're in your little room And you're working on something good But if it's really good You're gonna need a bigger room And when you're in the bigger room You might not know what to do You might have to think of how you got started Sitting in your little room, not at
1: Saturday, April 26th, 2014. It's 9:01 p.m. in Portland, Oregon. I'm Jack Miller
2: and I'm Shannon Emerson. This is White Tiger Radio. Thank you for tuning in everybody.
1: So uh so Shannon, what's what's on your mind tonight?
2: On my mind tonight is uh awkward second goodbyes.
1: Awkward second goodbyes. Let's see. Um what's that? I can't, uh, I'm trying to work it out, but, uh, I have a feeling that I probably ought to just not even try.
2: You know what they are. You just don't know that you know what they are. Uh So imagine that you meet someone at a party and you're having a great conversation with them. You find them interesting. They find you interesting. You, You know, you're just, you're connecting. It's great. You, you, the conversation goes on and on. And then inevitably you both realize that you know, it's it's done, it's over. You've 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 said it all. Maybe there's someone else interesting at the party, so somebody gracefully says, Yeah, I, I think I'm gonna go get another drink or I gotta get home, relieve the babysitter. So you, you know, go through your goodbye business. Uh you know, it was great to meet you. Great to find out about your goat farm. Good luck with that sculpture project. It sounds really fascinating. And, and don't forget to check out Luigi's next time you're in Phoenix for work, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You just, you nail the goodbye.
1: Right. That's, I mean, that's a good one. That you. It shows that you've been an active listener, that you're interested in what they're doing. And you've, you've just, you've kind of wrapped you it up. It.
2: You had a great conversation and you just goodbye the hell out of it. And it's great. you, know, you part ways, smiling at each other. And, uh, and then, you know, five minutes later, there you are at the front door, leaving at the same time, and oh no, it's all been done, and then you're just like, oh yeah, hey, and then yeah, okay, it's good to yeah, bye.
1: Right, okay, that's the second, that's the awkward second goodbye. And then there's it.
2: the there's an, another scenario, would be you're at lunch with an acquaintance, and you walk out the door of the restaurant. You're standing in front of the restaurant, and again, you're saying goodbye. Thanks for lunch. It was great to see you. We should do this again. And then you're like, where are you parked? Oh, I'm just parked up here, two blocks. Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, so then no. there you go. Yeah. You've done it all, and now you're walking two blocks together and I'm talking about probably the weather.
1: Right. That's a long two blocks. Yeah. I've walked that two blocks.
2: been a lot of rain lately, huh? So yeah.
1: You got nothing left.
2: So that's awkward second goodbyes. They're, they're no good. They're best to be avoided, yet unavoidable.
1: Do you have any tips for us for how to avoid it or no, it seems like it's unavoidable, right? Like you just can't. The problem
2: is it doesn't matter how smooth you are, it's gonna happen. Okay. That's the that's the problem.
1: Just oh, okay. It's one of those things. It's like it. it's like an existential problem. It just exists in the nature of the universe.
2: I think it's just a basic problem, not really even existential okay. as much.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm going over the top. That's, that's uh I want do. to do it. That's what you do. All right. Well, you know, tonight we're doing a theme show. Uh we gave people two weeks to send us a two-minute recording of a story based on this theme, Something Stupid I Did That Worked Out Okay. We're going to play those stories, along with a few songs we think fit this theme in some way or another, and that's going to be the theme show.
3: I went to high school in Peoria, which is this small city completely surrounded by cornfields in the middle of Illinois. and There's just a limited number of things that can happen on any Saturday night, which usually boils down to three rumors of parties where somebody's parents are out of town None of which happens to be true. You pack into whatever, breaking down Toyota Corolla or Honda Prelude with seven other guys. And what you do is you just drive around all night looking for these parties. At around 9 o'clock, everyone just shows up at the McDonald's parking lot. And if there are no girls with you, you go looking for a fight. This is the good part of town, so no one is really very tough. But the trick is to act like it. Get enough guys around you so that no one calls your bluff. I'm hanging out with Steve Monroe, black hair, black eyes, football player. Parents are divorced, so he lives with his dad in an apartment complex with all these older dudes who buy us alcohol. We go out one time with one of them. He's a dropout. Torn jeans, long hair, you know, the thin mustache, Metallica t-shirt with the sleeves ripped off, and these huge muscles. He works as a dishwasher at the Lariat Club, which is a barbecue restaurant. He just basically scares the shit out of me. So we end up at McDonald's that night, and we run into these kids from the high school on the legitimately tough side of town, Peoria Central and one of them starts yelling at us, calling us faggots or something. And this burnout dude, he rips off his denim jacket and he holds out his ripped arms and just starts yelling at him. And the central guys are like, we're getting the fuck out of here. And I think, awesome. I turn around to give everyone high fives. But this dude is like, let's fucking get him. We cram into Steve's dad's Ford Fiesta and we take off, catch up. We're yelling at each other through the windows. Steve yanks the wheel and slams us into the side of the other car. And I'll never forget the look on their faces. No one could believe he did it. He slowed down the car, and we pull into this parking lot. There was just this long, skinny dent all the way down the side of the car. And Steve figures he can just tell his dad he found it like that. So we went home. Well, I woke
4: up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head. That didn't hurt. And the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert. Then I fumbled in my closet, threw my clothes and found my cleanest, dirty shirt. Then I washed my face and combed my hair and stumbled down the stairs to meet the day. I'd smoked my mind the night before with cigarettes and songs I'd been picking But I lit my first and watched a small kid playing with a can that he was kicking Then I walked across the street And caught the Sunday smell of someone's frying chicken And, Lord, it took me back to something That I lost somewhere, somehow along the way On a Sunday morning sidewalk I'm wishing, Lord, that I was stoned Cause there's something in a Sunday that makes a body feel alone. And there's nothing sure to die in that's half as lonesome as the sound of the sleeping city sidewalk. And Sunday morning coming down In the park I saw a daddy With a laughing little girl That he was swinging And I stopped beside a Sunday school And listened to the songs they were singing Then I headed down the street And somewhere far away A lonely bell was ringing And it echoed through the canyons Like a disappearing dreams Of yesterday On a Sunday morning sidewalk I'm wishing Lord. That I was stoned. Cause there's something in a Sunday that makes a body feel alone. And there's nothing short of dying that's half as lonesome as the sound. Of the sleeping city sidewall And Sunday morning coming down
1: We started that mini set right there with a story by Greg Weinger entitled McDonald's Parking Lot, Peoria, Illinois, 1988. And uh, that story, Greg sent it in, and he he just said to me, he said, oh, Peoria, so much opportunity for stupidity. And uh, I think we can pretty easily agree to that.
2: After that story, uh, we had a lovely little song. We had Johnny Cash doing Sunday Morning Coming Down written by Chris Christofferson in 1969.
1: And that was, we had, uh, that was one of several versions that Johnny Cash released. Uh, he did a bunch of different versions of that. That was uh, one that was uh, released several years later after his first one. His first version was a live recording released in 1970, a year after the song was written, the same year that Chris Christofferson's version was released uh, in 1970. Uh, Johnny's version hit number one on the country charts and won him the CMA song of the year award. Chris Christopherson's version kind of fell into obscurity despite the fact that he had written that amazing song.
2: I have become a super nerd for Chris Christopherson since we started this show. I don't know what it is, but I just keep learning more about him. And, um, so he, he wrote Sunday morning coming down when he was 33
1: That was his Jesus year, right? And yeah. That's a heck of a Jesus year song for you. Yeah.
2: No one, no one else did that in their Jesus year. No one else wrote that song in their (laughs) Jesus year.
1: (laughs) Not even in their, like their pre Jesus year.
2: And uh, so he was living in Nashville at the time. The man lived in Nashville in the sixties. I think he started out, uh, I don't know. He's washing dishes somewhere when he first moved to Nashville or something like that, though he'd been, he has a whole like blue blood kind of military history or something. Uh, anyway, this is this is a quote from Chris Christopherson regarding his days in the 60s in Nashville. He said, Nothing could kill me. I was rolling cars and wrecking motorcycles, drinking and doing everything I could to die early, but it didn't work. So I would say that uh, it all worked out okay for Chris Christopherson. I
1: think it definitely did. And though I would say that by the mid 70s, he looked like nothing could kill him, but that many things had tried to kill him.
2: But now he looks—he's
1: an elder statesman. Now he's,
2: yeah, it, 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 is, it was just a temporary '70s situation. It, you know, he recovered. <laughs> I think there was uh. an awful lot of temporary '70s situations <laughs>
1: going on. I think, uh, I think that I'm not going i don't want to get all theme-y here tonight. But, but that—that that song, "Sunday Morning Come Down." I think the stupid thing that this the the narrator of the song did was the night before all that drinking and smoking. And then it it worked out, I I would say, more than okay with that beautiful, poignant Sunday morning, that walk. I think that was more than okay, the way that turned out.
2: I'm taking a walk tomorrow.
1: Tomorrow Tomorrow is Sunday morning. It's coming down. We got more stuff. We got more stories. We got more songs. Stupid things I did that worked out okay. Let's move on.
5: It all began when two close friends took a shine to each other. One, my best friend since junior high, the other, my husband's bandmate. Finally single at the same time, they began sheepishly inquiring about each other. Let me say for the record, there couldn't be a more perfect match. These two tall, good-looking, musical, terribly cool people complement each other perfectly. And I got wrapped up in their magic at first. I was in the delicious, vicarious middle, the go-between, in the moment with them, part of their magic time. But something made me pause. It was that I'd never known two friends to hook up successfully. My husband agreed. We'd endured too many awkward relationship aftermaths. "'What's-your-name still can't be in the same room with so-and-so,' he said. "'It won't end well,' he said, emphasizing end. "'This guy's in the band, and she's your best friend,' he said. "'Not a good idea.' When they started looking to me for more encouragement and advice, I had to think quickly. The train was leaving the station." I heated my doubtful mind and husband for the sake of best friends and the band. I did a stupid thing and tried to stop a love train. I played it cool, logical. To her I said, but you just got out of a 12-year relationship. Don't you need some time? To him, "Ah, oh, man, she's my best friend. Of course you know my change in attitude only fueled their burning mutual attraction. Ding, ding, ding. Gates closing. Danger, danger. But they busted through speeding toward the inevitable mad true crazy love i threw up my hands in defeat they smugly walked away no magic for you oh they broke up but they got back together and broke up and got back together a few more times but it eventually turned out okay there was a wedding a lovely baby and now a happy life last spring i heard her telling their get-together story in it i play the villain the annoying, love-hating ass-hat who stood in their way. But she said it with such spiteful glee, I knew I had been part of the magic after all. If I hadn't taken on that role, it wouldn't have been nearly as exciting. I learned that you can't stop a love train, but you can help it glow a little hotter, run a little faster before you jump out of its way.
6: into that city People gonna stoop and bow <laughs> All them women gonna make me Teach them what they don't know how I'm going to Jackson You turn a loose of my coat Cause I'm going to Jackson
7: Goodbye, that's all she wrote
6: a natural fact. Jackson, 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 Jackson. We're gone to Jackson. He never comin' back. Jackson, Jackson, Jackson. We got married in a fever. Jackson. Hotter than a pepper sprout. Jackson. We've been talking about Jackson ever since the fire
2: went out. The story we played there was off the tracks, ass hat shrew, you can't stop a love train.
1: That's a big title
2: by Tracy Bonacorso. That's a great title.
1: That's a fantastic title. That's a great title. Ass hat shrew, I just got to say that again. I
2: mean, we've all been there.
1: Absolutely, and <laughs> I, and I think that it's true. You can't stop a love train, and Tracy learned that lesson. It was, uh, it turned out okay. That was followed up by Jackson. And that song was written in 1963 not by who I thought had written it, June and Johnny Carter, Cash, people, but by Billy Ed Wheeler and Jerry Lieber. And it was first recorded by Billy Ed Wheeler in 1963, but it didn't get a lot of traction until 1967 when there were two hit releases, Uh, the Johnny and June version Uh, And the one we just heard, which was Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood, which was the pop hit single. Johnny and June had the country hit single. Um, And uh, the amazing thing is, is that I I have looked at these album covers many times and they're duet records, both of them. And Johnny and June look crazy. They're sitting in the forest and they look kind of crazed. Nancy and Lee are like looking in the same direction. Lee Hazelwood has a totally sixties anticipating the seventies mustache. And probably all y'all out there know what Nancy Sinatra looked like. And she kind of has this spooked look on her face.
2: You just said all y'all.
1: I know it. And I, how can I not say it? I don't Uh, know. By uh, choosing not to. (laughs) That's not a choice you can
2: make. So I'm going to interrupt you. Go right ahead. I already did. I think, but, um, I want to talk about Lee Hazelwood a little bit because so he was a producer um, before he was a co-pop star, sort of. Um, he he was a producer. He was producing Nancy Sinatra. So she had been recording for many years and not having success, and then Lee Hazelwood said, told her to sing in a lower register, and. And she immediately, they got a minor hit, the So Long Babe, kind of brought her into fame. And then he wrote, these boots are made for walking oh. for her. And she...
1: I can only imagine what drove him to write that song. I think he probably saw the thing, right? The boots, the walking. I always imagine that myself.
2: Well, I don't... I, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say it. So he wrote that song... And then he gave it to Nancy Sinatra, and he told her to sing it like a 16-year-old who fucks truckers. Nice. And so I didn't want to say that. I really didn't want to say that, but you made me say it. Why would you not want to say that? So so that's the story of Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra, who sang that song that we all know mostly from. Johnny Julie and June, and Johnny.
1: Those those 60s duets. Now they were just they were just fantastic, and I think for sure that that song fits. I said I wasn't gonna get all themy, but here I'm getting all themy. I think that that was a stupid thing that worked out okay. The uh, so
2: are you gonna just every break you're gonna say I don't want to get all themy, but I'm gonna get all themy. Is that gonna be your maybe that's your, my your theme. Your my thing?
1: theme is that I'm saying uh, I don't want to get all themy. I don't want to get, but see the here it is. I don't want to get like a double theme going, but obviously here I am. So, yeah, maybe I ought to just back off the whole theme thing.
2: You never will. It's the theme show. You never will. So I
1: can't do it. I'll try. I'm going to make a good effort.
2: Now, now it's time for the late local news with White Tiger Radio's very own Skip Papadopoulos. Skip.
8: Hey, it's me, your buddy Skip Papadopoulos. I got a story for you. Let me tell you about the time that I wore a clown outfit to a funeral. It's 87. I'm living in upstairs, downstairs, off the beaten path in West Palm. I live next to a guy named Bernie Torpowitz. Funny old Jewish guy telling jokes, kind of jokes that grab you by the head and laugh harder than you would when he told the joke. Come back one day, there's a note in the door that says, hey, your neighbor's dead. You know anybody that needs a room? It's kind of rough. It's good old Bernie. So I figure I'm going to go to the funeral. I'm going to walk down there, but I'm going to do something to honor old Bernie. How do you do that? Well, you rent a clown costume saturday comes around i'm dressed up full white paint floppy shoes big red hair i walk up into the funeral parlor the funeral director looks at me gives me a look like he says i've seen it all now i say tarpowitz points me to the door on the left i walk in and i silence you've not quite heard silence until you've been in a funeral parlor and a clown walks in i'm full of vim and vigor and walk up to the front and right over the cat down I give him two aunts and out, woo, laughing. Turn around, every single eye is on me. And that's the point when I start thinking, maybe I'm the only one that thinks this is funny. So I walk back to the back row, slink away, sit down. The pastor starts saying the good word and all of a sudden everyone turns and looks at the door again. In walks what I would call a stunner, statuesque woman, walks in. She's looking for a seat and, of course, no one's sitting next to the clown at the funeral. She comes over and leans down and says, is the seat taken? I say, it's wide open. The girl looks to me and grabs my shoulder and says, let me get this straight. You wore a clown outfit to my Uncle Bernie's funeral. I kind of hang my head in shame, knowing it's going the wrong way. Then she says to me one thing that I would never have thought of. She grabs my shoulder again and says, you wore a clown outfit to a funeral. I want to party with you, Bozo. I married that woman eight months later. I never did again wear that clown costume, though. This has been your Late Local News with Skip. See you tomorrow.
2: Well, thanks for that, Skip. I um, have to say I was a little surprised by that one, because I'd always heard that Skip met his wife when he went on a booze cruise dressed as a mime. But maybe I'm mixing that up with the story about how he met his accountant. No, really?
1: See, I heard a different story, and I'm pretty sure—I f- really feel positive—that Skip told me the story himself. That uh, his wife was the public defender who got him off his drug-running charge. Now, it was West—was West, West Palm—that he told me, uh, but maybe I don't know. I don't know. That Skip—you know—he seems so straight around the around the studio. He's got a lot of stories, though. He's kind of shifty. He's got some stuff. He's got some deep stuff in there. That's uh White Tiger Radio's very own Skip Papadopoulos with the late local news. One of these days, we're gonna get the news out of him, but uh, I don't, uh, I don't know that we need any more news than that. Moving on, we've got another story.
2: Close enough. Really good. So you want me to say it into the microphone? Well. Well, it really wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't even illegal, really. I mean, we wouldn't have even been there if, well, oh, whatever. That doesn't matter now. I mean, because it wasn't their fault. I mean, that's what people always said. But it wasn't it really wasn't i mean they they didn't even know about stuff like that they were they were from they were from somewhere else, and it didn't matter but it but it it really wasn't that big of a deal and I don't even know why I am talking about it because it's just it's something that happened it was is in the past. It's just really not even important anymore. And ultimately everything was fine. <laughs>
0: I once was a man who just couldn't cry He hadn't cried for years and for years the babies of the movie Love Story For instance, could not produce tears Child, He had cried As all children will But at some point His tear ducts ran dry He grew to be a man The feces hit the fan Things got bad But he couldn't cry dog was run over his wife up and left him after that he got sacked from his job lost his arm in the war was laughed at by a whore I've still not a sniffle or sob Well, his novel was refused and his movie was panned. And his big Broadway show was a flop. He was sent off to jail. You guessed it, no bail. Oh, but still not a dribble or dry. Well, in jail, he was beaten, bullied, and buggered, and made to make license plates. Water and bread was all he was fed. And not once did a tear stain his face doctors were called in scientists too theologians were last and practically least they all agreed sure enough this was sure no cream puff but in fact an insensitive beast From jail And placed in a place For the insensitive And the insane He played lots of chess And he made lots of friends And he wept every time It would rain Well, once a It rained 40 days And it rained 40 nights And it cried and it cried and it cried and it cried On the 41st day He passed away He just dehydrated and died Well, he went up to heaven, located his dog. Not only that, but he rejoined his arm. Down below all the critics, they took it all back. Cancer robbed the whore of her charm. His ex-wife died of stretch marks His ex-employer went broke The theologians were finally found out Right down to the ground The prison burned down The earth suffered perpetual drought
1: we're back. We started off that set with Shannon Emerson, and then the story was entitled, That Time.
2: And after that we had The Man Who Couldn't Cry, written and performed by Loudon Wainwright III, which is cool because what I do before I uh, do any radio show is I just say, Loudon Wainwright III, Loudon Wainwright III,
1: that's, it really is a good exercise for your jaw, your lips, your neck even.
2: No one, no one knows it, but it's a really good trick. That song was made famous by Johnny Cash on his American Recordings in 1994. That was the first of uh, his final series of albums that were produced by Rick Rubin for American Recordings. Uh, dear, sweet, faithful, lovely listeners... I don't know if you've noticed, but there's an alternate, alternate theme going on tonight.
1: Is it a theme within a theme, Shannon? Would you call it that? Or is it a y- side theme? Y-
2: you, Whatever you want to call it. You're the theme guy. You call it. What do you think it is? I'm not getting all themy. I,
1: I have been made aware of my ultra theminess, and so I'm going to just kind of step aside and let... If
2: you say themey one more time, I might lose it.
1: Well... Now you're tempting me. You really you, I would love to see you lose it. I want to see you just say Loud and Wainwright the third again. No one can see you.
2: Loudon and Wainwright the third. It's loud a great and bumblebee bumblebee bumble You gotta warm thing. your
1: face up before you get on the air.
2: So the the alternate theme is Johnny Cash. The man in Johnny black Johnny Cash the Man in Black. He he could be the poster child for doing stupid things that worked out okay. You can't deny that it all worked out okay. Uh, So we're playing a selection of songs alongside our fantastic two-minute stories that were either written by Johnny Cash, performed by Johnny Cash, made more famous by Johnny Cash than the original writer, performer. Whatever scenario you can think of, we're drawing it in and making it all about John Cash
1: tonight. We've combed through our Johnny Cash knowledge and the man in black is is he's he's a big figure around here at the uh, white tiger radio mm, maybe on par with chris christopherson certainly he came before we were big johnny cash people before that and and i would say that christopherson has come on strong lately there's a lot of overlap i mean sunday morning chris will never down.
2: overtake john no matter what no I mean, no matter what he wrote some but. amazing
1: songs uh, now that song the man who couldn't cry by Loudon wayne wright the third that was originally recorded by him uh, following up his surprise hit, Dead Skunk. And I'm not making that up. Dead Skunk was his surprise hit. And I wonder if anybody in the record industry thought, well, that's never going to be a hit, Dead Skunk. But it was. Then he made this follow-up album, which included The Man Who Couldn't Cry. And that follow-up album was called Attempted mustache.
2: Attempted mustache?
1: Attempted mustache.
2: That sounds like something my high school geometry teacher... Your geometry... That <laughs> sounds like something my high school geometry teacher did once.
1: You need to do some more face warm-up exercises with your mouth. Loudon Wainwright III. The, the, third. Third.
9: the Nordstrom Rack in Seattle was having a designer sale. There were four or five eight-foot racks packed with serious high-end clothes hanging awkwardly on hangers. True designer clothes are made to fit bodies and don't resemble clothes until you put them on. Their tags are thick brochures written in fashion language and math. I hadn't been to a designer sale in about five years, but I was pretty sure my American body fit into an Italian size 44 or an English size 12. I walked a few steps closer to the clothes and a 25-pound pale pink sequin dress whispered princess in good marriage and gin and tonic. The dress was on sale for $600, so I grabbed a $600 Stella McCartney skirt that was marked down to 175 and tried that on instead. My sock feet stood tiptoe on lint-caked industrial carpet, imagining heels. The white melamine walls and the cheap dressing room lock helped me focus. I bought the skirt, and that night... I danced in it like I was Beyoncé in that club until 3 in the morning. A few weeks later, I paid my Nordstrom bill. Then I got another Nordstrom bill in the mail. Designer neckwear, $98. Designer shoes, 495. I read and reread the charges. I memorized them. I started pressing 9 and saying agent as soon as the automated system listed options. "Hello, my card has been stolen." While they pulled the info, I noticed a name at the top of the bill. Hey, hey, I have the name. It's Marcy. V-A-R-G-O. The name was familiar. The address on the bill was for the apartment next to mine. Mmm, I think I know what happened. I asked if they could send her a new bill. I was too embarrassed to tell Marcy I'd opened her mail, but I'll never miss a chance to stare at her shoes.
7: happen that way will you ask me if i am get along I guess I will Some way I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way Things happen that way. Well, God gave me that man and me then He put me on my own. Heaven help me to be strong and have the strength to carry on. I don't, like it, I, I, I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way. I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way. But I guess things happen that way
4: Oh, that's perfect.
3: Yeah. All right, that'll do it.
4: And there's a spark plug.
3: Damn it! All right, we're going to the store.
2: Her story was Shopping Genius by Judy Asello.
1: And Judy told me when she sent that story in, she told me that she once carried a gin and tonic across Hawthorne Boulevard here in Portland in her purse. And I thought, I, I thought that was a pretty impressive feat. And I asked her, did any of it spill? Was it a full one? She claims that it was a full gin and tonic and that she did not spill it. So I, I'm pretty impressed by that. No I don't know how
2: that's possible. How's that? I mean, that has to be one of those Portland mason jar type situations to pull that off. I don't know.
1: Or, I mean, there, You know, what kind of purse would do that? probably has like a solid bottom, maybe.
2: It's possible that just Judy Ocello is magic.
1: She could have just shot across Hawthorne so fast that the gin and tonic didn't even have a chance to spill.
2: I'm going with Judy Ocello's magic.
1: We followed that story up with Guess Things Happen That Way, which was written by Jack Clement... And recorded by Johnny Cash in 1958 as I Guess Things Happen That Way. Amy Lou Harris did Guess Things Happen That Way. She dropped the I. Uh, the song Johnny released in 1958 was his fourth number one song on the country chart. And it spent eight weeks at number one.
2: Jack Clement was a killer. He, he, produ- he was a producer at Sun Records in the 1950s. And he wrote songs for Johnny Cash and he produced Roy Orbison and Jerry Lee Lewis and Waylon Jennings and even a couple, I think three tracks off of U2's Rattle and Hum at Sun Records. He produced it for U2.
1: And Jack Clement recently passed away, recently died. And I know that only because I heard it on the Phillips and Flathead Radio Hour where where they did a fantastic Jack Clement tribute show. You should check it out.
2: I love The Phillips and Flathead Radio Hour.
1: That's my favorite radio show.
2: It is my favorite as well. And timely because the last story that we played in that set was Free Mower by Phil Tiso, who is the host of the Phillips and Flathead Radio Hour.
1: And according to Phil, and I quote, that story is 100% true. I don't doubt it. I think that... uh, in fact, we should all know that a free mower is kind of like a free lunch. Actually, I think you're more likely to get a free lunch than a free mower.
10: My story starts when I went on a trip to Costa Rica, and the first town I went to was Tamarindo. So it's my first week there, and I'm just really excited to to see all the sights and everything this country has to offer. So I end up grabbing a short surfboard and just walking along this beach, Uh Tamarindo to another one called uh, Playa Grande in order to get to this beach I had to um, paddle across an estuary um, and to walk a couple miles so once I was there it was as beautiful as everybody had said so there's amazing surf great weather I met some great people and ended up just really having a great time so once you know a few hours went by and the sun was going down so I thought it was best Thought it was smart that I was going back home early, but by this time, um the the easy estuary that I had crossed over has now become this uh you know current, this river of um, fast paced water that I now have to try and get across with a shortboard going directly into the ocean. It almost seemed impossible. So I finally, I just had to suck it up and make it happen. And with everything I had, made it across there and fearing for my life. So there's two people actually waiting on the other side. And I believe that they were you know, there to make sure I made it out okay and were looking out for me. But once I I finally made it across and was just relieved and just said, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I made that. And all they had to say was, You know that there's crocodiles, right?
11: Well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much for ma and me just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him cause he runnin' hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well he must have thought it was quite a joke And it got a lot of laughs from a lot of folks Seems I had to fight my whole life through Some gal would giggle and I'd get red Some guy would laugh and I'd bust his head I tell you life ain't easy for a boy named Sue Well I grew up quick and I grew up mean My fists got hard my wits got keen I roamed around the town to hide my shame Well, I made my vow to the moon and stars. I'd search the honky tonks and the bars. I'd kill that man that gave me that awful name. Well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July, and I just hit town and my throat was dry. Thought I'd stop and have myself a brew. At an old saloon on a street of mud, there at a table it stood set the dirty mangy dog that named me Sue. Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had. And I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was big and bent and gray and old. And I looked at him and my blood run cold. And I said, my name is Sue. How do you do? Ah, you're gonna die. Yeah, that's what I told him. Well I hit him hard right between the eyes and he went down, but to my surprise, he came up with a knife, cut off a piece of my ear. Well I busted a cheer right across his teeth, and he crashed through the wall and into the street, kicking and the gouging in the mud and the blood and the beard. I'll tell you I fought tougher men, but I really can't remember when. He kicked like a mule and bit like a crocodile. I heard him laugh and I heard him cuss and he went for his gun and I pulled mine first He stood there looking at me and I saw him smile And he said, son, this world is rough and if a man's gonna make it, he's gotta be tough And I knew I wouldn't be there to help you along So I gave you that name and I said goodbye and I knew you'd have to get tough or die And it's that name that's helped to make you strong he said, you fought one heck of a fight And I know you hate me and you've got the right To kill me now, I wouldn't blame you if you did But you ought to thank me before I die For the gravel in your gut and the spit in your eye For I'm the that named you Sue
4: Lester, what the hell did you say?
11: Yeah, what could I do? got all choked up and threw down my gun I called him my pa and he called me his son And I came away with a different point of view And I think about him now and then Every time I try and every time I win And if I ever have a son, I think I'll name him... Well, I ain't gonna name him Sue I'm gonna call him Johnny Cash
1: Started off that set with Megan Iwami and her story Estuary and I can only help thinking I can't help but think. <laughs> I can only help but not thinking. It's uh that's a tricky phrase. I know, laugh, go ahead that's and laugh. Cool. We're picking that's up cool. what you're putting
2: down. Yeah. Proceed, I can't proceed. help
1: but think that those people who she thought were so concerned about her were just standing there thinking, Oh, please don't get attacked by a crocodile. Because then they would have had to decide whether or not they were going to watch her get devoured by a crocodile, or risk their own lives to go in and help. Because I put myself right. I was like, no, please don't get eaten by a crocodile.
2: Yeah, you're. It's a good observation. They were, they were just like, I don't know. I don't know which kind of person I am, and I don't want to find out tonight. Yep. I'm and not. They, I'm not ready to find <laughs> out tonight. I. That's
1: that's that's one of those moral tests where you say to somebody, and maybe this would be a good thing to do if you're like you hitting that awkward second goodbye, this would be a good thing to pull up. Like, you know, I have this story. And you tell them that story and probably take about a block and a half. And then you would give them the other last half of a block to say, what would you have done if she'd been attacked by crocodiles? Would you have gone in or would you have just watched?
2: I think you just can't know that stuff until it presents itself to you. Before that, or no, after that story, we had a boy named Sue by Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs.
1: Those sons of bitches. Those
2: guys were referred to as Flat and Scruggs. That's no surprise. (laughs) And yes, it was Earl Scruggs who said, Lester, what the hell did you say? That was Earl Scruggs saying that. So Flat and Scruggs were the founding and main players in the Foggy Mountain Boys, which was a group, a bluegrass band formed i think in the mid to late 40s and according to anyone who cares about bluegrass and music that they were the premier bluegrass group in the history of the genre
1: how far back does the bluegrass genre go
2: i i mean it goes back to the the original you know hillbillies of kentucky here's something or Tennessee or anywhere where the billies were in the hills, I think. I
1: suppose so. You know, I don't know how far back bluegrass music goes, but I do know that Kentucky bluegrass is both a misnomer and an invasive species. I think probably the only thing in the world that is both a misnomer and an (laughs) invasive species.
2: That's awesome. I like that.
1: The Englishman who crossed the Appalachians into what is now known as Kentucky saw this amazing grass everywhere and called it Kentucky bluegrass, when in fact it was an Irish grass that had come over uh, with the colonists and just spread because it was so much better suited to the Appalachian Highlands than it was to the Irish Highlands. There it is. A Boy Named Sue, the song you heard, was of course made famous by Johnny Cash. He first recorded that at a concert at San Quentin State Prison in 1969. A lot of Johnny's big songs were recorded live, not studio recordings. He was quite a dynamic live performer and preferred to do the live uh, song. That song was written by children's poet Shel Silverstein and sent to Johnny as a poem, not as a song, as a poem intended to be a song. And uh, it became Johnny Cash's biggest hit ever, On the Billboard Hot 100 chart, it spent three weeks at number two. A Boy Named Sue never quite reached number one because the Rolling Stones' honky-tonk women kept it from being number one. Sorry, Johnny, the Rolling Stones are sitting atop the charts in 1969. Years later, and I'm talking about 20 or 30 years later, Shel Silverstein wrote a follow-up song called The Father of A Boy Named Sue because he thought that it was important to tell the other side of the story. I started playing golf a few years ago. I always hated the game and still do, but I took it up so my father-in-law would shut the fuck up about how I really ought to play golf. It'd be good for my stress level. I told him I didn't have time, and in my head I told him to fuck off. I was sorry enough I'd married his daughter, and wasn't that goddamned enough? But no, he kept at it, and after I had my first heart attack, he just went out and bought me an expensive set of clubs and got me a membership over at Wilshire Oaks. Next thing I know... I'm spending my days off playing golf with a rotating cast of fat assholes with nothing better to talk about than their goddamn handicap, their fucking portfolio, and how Obama was ruining the country. It was all going pretty badly for me until one of those fat fucks bent my five iron. He got pissed off at some remark I made about his backswing. I can't remember exactly what I said, but he told me to take it back, and I told him to bite me, and then he bent my five iron. Just yanked it out of my bag and bent it over his knee, and then stood there smirking. I chased him down to the water hazard with my three wood, swinging it over my head like a maniac. I told that fuckwit to jump in or I was going to beat his brains out. I must have looked like a complete nutjob because he flopped right into the water and started thrashing around, blubbering something about the cold giving him a stroke. I kept menacing him with my three wood until a club official whizzed over in his cart and put a stop to it all. They made me apologize, which I did, because it was kind of crazy. I never replaced that five iron, so now, when I'm 150 yards out, I use a four iron with a light swing, I guess it worked out okay, though. I was never very good with any of the mid-irons anyway. I had a pretty consistent slice that I could never correct enough for, so I always ended up to the right of the green, except for those rare times when I hit it fucking straight and it went way to the left where I was aiming. I've kind of lightened on my swing in general, which has improved my accuracy and made golf a whole hell of a lot less stressful. My handicap is down to four, and I consistently beat my father-in-law, who's very openly pissed about that situation. He's back to bad-mouthing me to his daughter, which isn't helping my marriage any, but fuck it it wasn't going to last much longer no matter what. And if truth be told, that's probably for the best as well.
4: I gave my woman half my money at the general store. I said, now buy little groceries and don't spend no more. But she paid $10 for a 10 cent hat and bought some store-bought cat food for that mean-eyed cat. When I woke up this morning and I turned my head There wasn't a cotton-picking thing on her side of bed I found a little old note where her head belonged It said, Dear John, honey baby, I'm long gone When I heard a whistle blowing and the big wheels were turning I was scared as I could be I put on my overalls and I headed to town gonna bring her back with me I asked the man down at the station if you'd seen her there I told him all about her pretty eyes and long blonde hair He spit his tobacco, said I'll beat that blame I believe I did see her leaving on the Eastbound train I bought a round-trip ticket on the eastbound train I was broke as I could be But when I come back, I gotta buy another ticket Gonna bring her back with me Well, I got off the train somewhere in Arkansas And I worked up the guts to call my mother-in-law She said, I'll tell you where she is if you act right. She's working 4 to 12 at Truckers World tonight. Well, when I walked in, she saw me, and she took off her apron, and she grabbed her going home hat. She bought a ticket with her tips. Now we're curled up on a sofa. Me and her, I'm that mean-eyed cat.
2: Started that set with "You bent my five iron, you fat fuck" by Jack Miller.
1: Those mid irons are tricky; they really are.
2: I don't know much about the golf, but I know that you do. It's. I mean, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, five iron, four iron, mid iron.
1: Anywhere I I would you know some people would call the mid irons four to six. I'm I'm going to go ahead and say three to seven are the mid irons. The short irons are the eight and nine. And uh, and
2: now I'm bored.
1: Yeah, I was just about to say that you almost fell off your stool with with sleepy boredness. I fell asleep. That was followed up by Mean-Eyed Cat, which was written by Johnny Cash, originally recorded in 1960 on Sings Hank Williams. That's a Johnny Cash album called Sings Hank Williams. And the great thing about this album is that only four of the 12 songs were actually written by Hank Williams.
2: That's ballsy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> they were the first four songs on the record, to be fair, but of the other eight songs, seven of them were written by Johnny Cash himself, including Mean-Eyed Cat.
2: It should have been like, sings Hank Williams at first.
1: And then goes on to sing all kinds of his own songs. I think he must have wanted to just get people to buy the record, right? And then hear his great songs. Yeah. We don't yeah. know. We don't know what he Nothing was thinking. Nothing wrong with
2: that, kind of, except...
1: 1960, I think Johnny was probably just winging it and doing whatever the hell he wanted. He was one of the most popular country artists at the time and for another decade at least. So we'll give him a break on that one. We played the version recorded for Johnny's 1996 release, another one of those American Recordings. That was American Recordings 2 Unchained.
2: We have one last story to play. And... uh This last story comes from a man who has taught me many things in my 42 years, but uh, I think the one thing he taught me that is the most important is that it's okay and even encouraged to do stupid things with one caveat. You just have to make sure that when you're doing these stupid things, you're smart enough In your stupidity, to make sure that you'll always have the chance to do one more stupid thing. It's called smart stupidity, and uh, it's what it's all about, I think.
1: I think that's our takeaway for the night. And here it is Yellowstone by John Emerson.
12: I was up in Yellowstone National Park riding a rented snowmobile, 10 degrees below zero, rode all day, saw a buffalo. Wolves, eagles, it sure was great. Had to make a flight out of Salt Lake City Airport the next day at noon. Went to bed to get a little sleep, set the alarm for 3 o'clock. Got up, went to the road where I headed south, said the road was closed. Talked to a trucker, asked him what's going on. He said, snow in the hills. Road might be open in a half hour, might not be open for a day. So now I had to take the long way around. What had been a 300-mile drive turned into a 500-mile drive. Road was pretty twisty, blizzard conditions, six inches of snow on the road. Took a long time to get to Route 15. Met a snowplow on the way. If we both hadn't been on the correct side of the road, it would have been really ugly. Finally made it to Route 15, headed south. Still snowing, ice on the highway. Had to do some quick calculations in my head. Found out I was still way behind schedule. The only way I was going to make it was to go real fast. Drove 90 miles an hour on glare ice. It was very exciting. Wanted to find out what would happen when I put the brakes on. Well, the anti-skid went into effect. I kept going straight but I didn't slow down much. Finally, made it to Salt Lake City on time, got on the flight, made it home. That was the stupidest thing I ever did, but it turned out okay, sure was fun.